So I think this copycat thing naturally has legs. If you get really good at it, the arbitrage kind of goes away. And so mm. I don't think it's a very good factory to invest in. It's a short-lived factory. And almost the more successful you are, the more of a victim of your own success you are, because I think it, it basically pisses people off, especially the original founder of the idea. Hey everyone, what's up and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and crypto assets. Now, this episode is part two of the ArabNet series we recorded in Saudi Arabia. And I am delighted to welcome our next guest, Hussein Kanji, who's a partner at Hoxton Ventures. In this episode, Hussein discusses why scale matters, why the copycat models are at risk, why he's focusing his investment efforts in Europe, and what I liked most from the discussion was understanding the way Hoxton Ventures partners with the founders and teams that they invest in. Now, this episode wasn't too much blockchain or crypto focus, but more generally focus on investments and why scale matters. I was not present at the interview. My wonderful co-host Nick has been doing a good job so far in his solo interviewing efforts. He interviewed Hussein this time around, and I really, truly enjoyed listening to this episode. So thanks again for your insights, Hussein. Also would like to thank those who have been supporting the show. I remember you could support us in any way possible. You can subscribe, rate and review the show, share the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. And now on to the show. Welcome to Encrypted. We have another great guest all the way from Arabnet in sunny Riyadh. We have Hussein Kanji, who is a partner at Hoxton Ventures. Hello, Hussein. Hi. So Hussein, please tell us why you've come all the way from the UK over to Saudi Arabia, Riyadh specifically, for this event. I know it's not your first time in Saudi Arabia, but please tell us about why you're here and, and what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. So I came to the very first ArabNet, which is, oh boy, not quite a decade ago, it's only between five to 10 years ago, it's early. And I know a lot's changed in the region since then. They moved ArabNet or started alternating between Riyadh and Beirut. And I haven't come to any of the Riyadh ones before. So I thought I'd come to this one and see, you know, see what's actually changed in the region. I also was here earlier this year. And then the previous time was about two years ago. So I have a little bit of a pace of change or feel a little bit of a pace of change. Awesome. How are you finding the region? The region is far more on the map from a technology perspective than it used to be in the past. There are a lot more companies that are expanding out here and there are companies that are coming out from here. We see business plans every once in a while. The most recent was a company called Kitopi, which is a food delivery company building virtual restaurants that was raising money both here as well as in Europe and the US. So I think most of the venture community kind of all over the world saw that company. Very interesting. So you're in Riyadh, the GCC. What do you specifically do as a European investor? What, what are you looking for? Yeah, so we, we started our fund, it, it's now been six years, on, on a very simple thesis, which is we were looking for companies that could be born in Europe that we thought could become really large, valuable global companies. So they, want, they wouldn't turn into European companies, they would turn into global companies. And, and we were convinced that the world was globalizing. And as a result of that kind of decentralization, these companies would come out from anywhere. That's largely proven to be the case. When we first set up our fund, we were looking for logos to put on our slide to tell investors that this was going to happen. And we could come up with Skype. And that was about it. Today, if you look at Europe, Spotify's from Europe. Elasticsearch came out of Europe. Deliveroo is out of Europe. That's one of ours. 
TransferWise came out of Europe. There's a whole bunch of companies. It's it's not just a small handful anymore. It's it's probably about 80-something companies that have come out of, from Europe that are billion-dollar companies. We're convinced that that same trend will happen in other places in the world. And I think that will happen in the Middle East at some point. The question is just when. There's a bunch of ingredients that kind of have to be there. People have to have the right ideas. The capital has to be there. People have to be willing to take risk and kind of play the long game. And then you really do have to swing for the fences trying to build a large global business versus just a local business. And I think that shift will happen. It may already be happening. And so part of the reason to come here in Riyadh and as well as like Dubai, Abu Dhabi, you know, Egypt, uh, just generally in the Arab world is take a look and see if, if, if the conditions have changed. If you're investing at the moment, how much has your, your fund approach changed from the initial days to six years later? Have you pivoted several times or are you still on the same track? No, we're on, we're on the same thesis. Our, our thesis is basically find companies that are inventing brand new markets. So things that don't exist, that were only possible, that are basically born around the time that the company is born are the things that we're looking for. And then hopefully those markets scale up to be multi-billion dollar markets and the companies then scale up to be multi-billion dollar companies. And then they'll target a global audience versus a local audience. So it's people don't often realize this. We were early investors in Deliveroo. You know, Deliveroo was only really possible once you had inexpensive smartphones that you could give all the drivers or the riders that deliver the food and then use that as a tracking engine to be able to communicate with them in order to make sure the delivery is as efficient as possible, both for the customer, but also just for the company so they could get utilization out of the the, the riders so they could do more than one delivery an hour because otherwise the unit economics in that business don't really work. That was a new trend and we were convinced that people would take advantage of that trend and be able to turn that into a big new kind of compelling market. And that's certainly what's happened. Delivery has gone all over the world. There are companies in the US like Instacart and Postmates and DoorDash are kind of riding on, on top of that same trend that are also pretty valuable companies. So we're trying to find those kinds of companies. That thesis is the same six years ago. The only difference is there was a time in Europe where a, a seed round was 100K to 500K and a series A round was kind of like one to five million. And today Europe has caught up with the US and a seed round is kind of one to three million <laughs> and a series A round is like five to 10 million. Yeah. So the price arbitrage where you could use a small amount of capital to do this has gone away. And I, I think that's largely because so much money has gone into the venture industry. It yeah. attracts all kinds of folks who want to do well, this. You, you'd, you'll be good to be investing here then because the seed is still truly seed yeah so i think it's not we're nowhere near a level of series a seed type investments. yeah i think it's only when the u.s that you know the kind of the large like the good u.s firms get involved that the prices kind of go up because i think the local funds are either non-existent they're just Mm. not that many of them or when they are they don't think like venture people they think like private equity or late stage Mm. or kind of family business owners where they think about cash flow versus scale. And while you want both things to happen inside of a company, the world is usually mutually exclusive and you have to pick one path or the other. Do you want to be profitable or do you want to get really big and then focus on getting big and, you know, not worry so much about profitability? The Americans who've been doing this for a while, the U.S. firms that have been doing this for a while understand that. The rest of the world really doesn't, thinks it's too risky. And so they don't tend to capitalize companies kind of correctly. It's it's really hard to build a company that would become very large with a 150K check, even at the seed round. Even when talent, the talent pool is really inexpensive and it's it's fairly cheap to be able to do things in certain places, it still requires a certain amount of money. And I'm always surprised by 
how little people want to part with that money and be in the venture game. It's the U.S. firms are like, look, if we think this can get big, let's just write a three million or five million or ten million dollar check and and get on with it. And let's go turn this company into something big and kind of be supportive partners. Not not everyone thinks about the world that way. No. What's interesting, I'm going to play a devil's advocate question with you. Almost all of the unicorns that have come up in this region, it's a very small amount, but the ones that have come are not the innovators. They are copycats of something done in the West, just localized and regionalized. So your fund is about finding that open space where there is an opportunity to be created. So are you limiting yourself from copycats or are you considering something that is being brought to a region, but it's being regionalized as something fresh? We are. I mean, so I think the challenge, the challenge with copycats is I think they have natural limits. And the natural limit is I think they only scale up to be regional winners. They can't scale up to be global winners. There are always exceptions to the rule, which is they win the region and then somehow they go head to head with the thing that they're copying and and disrupt the one that, that they're copying. But that's that's a hard playbook. Like if you look at one of the poster children for this is, is Zalando, which is the precursor to what the Rocket Internet guys did. It was basically a copycat of Zappos in the US. And it's a it's a decently valuable company. Zappos ended up getting acquired by Amazon. Zalando's is publicly traded and is doing pretty well. But, you know, it has a natural market cap. It's very unlikely that that business will turn out to be a 50 billion or 100 billion dollar type business. It will stay kind of the European winner in, in, in many ways. We, you know, we were famously, I remember there was an investor who sat us down, listened to our pitch. So there's no, there's absolutely no way I want to invest with you guys. And what I want to do is I want to be, you, you guys are trying to build kind of custom cars. I want to be investor and an investor in a factory that produces cars. And so he put all of his money behind Rocket Internet because he thought that was a better model where they had figured out not how to invest in a company, but how to build the factory that produces companies. The problem with, the problem with all of that is it's an arbitrage. And the arbitrage largely, it has this kind of presumption, which is that the company that you're copying doesn't care very much about the market that you're in. And if you do it really well, you almost often provoke a response from the company that you're copying. So there was a time where, generally speaking, in the US, if you were on the board of a technology company, particularly a consumer type company, and someone around the table said, we should go internationalize and we should go into Europe, the board will push back and say, why worry about that today if you're a younger company? Focus on the fundamentals, focus on your core market, which is the US, get that extra percentage point of growth or the extra five percentage points of growth by targeting your home market, as opposed to doing something that is a mess that's much more difficult, that has time zones, et cetera, et cetera, which is what let the playbook work for Rocket Internet. So there was a time when these copycat models worked really well, but the problem is they provoke a response usually from the market. So I'll give you the real world example. So one of the most successful copycats was done by Rocket where they took the Groupon business model and they copied it. It was called City Deal. They then subsequently sold City Deal back to Groupon. And today City Deal or that international arm of Groupon is about half the revenue of Groupon. It's a very significant portion. But basically all they did was they took the Groupon model when Groupon wasn't willing to scale internationally, ran that playbook and then sold it back, which meant that every younger entrepreneur in the Bay Area realized that, hey, these guys could do that to myself. And so when Airbnb came around and Uber came around, both of them said, we do not want to leave that kind of money on the table where we're forced to acquire someone else. And there's a whole different cultural fit. We would just much rather step on the gas ourselves. 
they they fought with their boards to say, hey, this is possible. And then what they did was they hired the same set of people that Rocket Internet hires and basically put them into their organization and then scaled up from there. And as a result, Uber and Airbnb went international way faster. And that basically triggered a response from everyone else in the Bay Area, which is, look, if those guys can do it, other people can do it. And so now almost nobody leaves Europe on the table for someone else to go replicate their business. And the Rocket guys were so good at replicating that they 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 literally would copy like the font style, the template, right? And it was it was such a perfect copy that it really aggravated the person who was actually the inventor of the business. And and what ended up happening is Rocket had to go to all kinds of other places in the world that these guys would not go to, Africa, Southeast Asia. And it's just really hard to build really big, impressive, valuable businesses. And today, Rocket Internet is basically a gigantic venture capital firm. It uses its balance sheet to try and invest in companies. It doesn't really do the copycat playbook anymore. So I think this copycat thing naturally has legs. If you get really good at it, the arbitrage kind of goes away. And so mm. I don't think it's a very good factory to invest in. It's a short-lived factory. And almost the more successful you are, the more of a victim of your own success you are, because I think it, it basically pisses people off, especially the original founder of the idea. So we took an early view. We're not going to play that game. We're going to find new stuff. And then we're going to help turn that stuff into the global leaders as opposed to being the copy of the thing in, in, in the U.S., which is often usually the way it was. We want the European one. And again, there are examples today. Spotify, you know, no matter how hard Apple Music has tried to catch up, Spotify is the global leader for, for that industry, for kind of streaming music. And it happens to be a European company. We think that's going to happen more and more. But it's not going to come cheap. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes people who are willing to write the check and be patient and kind of play the long game, which unfortunately still to this day, Europe doesn't have enough of. And weirdly enough, the, the worst thing that I see about the region here is the enormous amount of wealth that's here mm. that really fundamentally doesn't understand how to build these companies and just does what I would consider really unusual things, like put a chunk of money into SoftBank as opposed to creating like the five or 10 different versions of Sequoia and, and then really try and catalyze this region. I, I just, I think there's a fundamental disconnect between this industry and how people understand it. The training ground is largely in the tech industry in the Bay Area. And because the Bay Area is so successful, people in the Bay Area don't leave the Bay Area. They stay in the Bay Area because why would you give up that opportunity cost? So the knowledge doesn't disperse nearly as rapidly as it should to other places. Yeah, putting all that money into SoftBank, if it failed, It'd be like, but it's SoftBank. So yeah, yeah, it's the failure it's, it's rate, the, the, the risk, the risk, the yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. it's the buy IBM is, and and the the challenge is almost always the stuff that's really interesting in our industry is not the stuff of last year. It's the mm. stuff of tomorrow, and you have to, as a venture person, train yourself to figure out what's going to yeah. happen tomorrow, not not what happened in the past. I, th I think we're in a very very interesting moment in time for the GCC right now. Fifteen years I've been here. And, and been to most of the countries, even in Africa. And you can see that the, the shift in running a business has changed so much more in the last two to three years than it has in the first 15 years of this, this, this entire century. And what I'm finding right now is that the, the shift in culture is towards better operated, more efficient companies that are more customer orientated because of the demands of the customer, which I think is going to create a huge opportunity of critical change. And there are opportunities to build businesses here that are unique, but probably will only scale to cultures that are like this culture. They're not Western cultures. They're, they're, they're more newer cultures. Let's put it that way. So the, the challenge in venture is when you're doing early stage venture, 
your failure rate's really high. And so because your failure rate's really high, and, and no matter what you do, it's just the nature of the market. Even if you try and invest in things you know, that, that don't seem that risky, if you're going to do tech-oriented stuff, stuff changes, the game, the board changes, Amazon decides to enter the, you know, that market. It'll just There's so much entropy in the system that your failure rate's really quite high. And then there's all kinds of challenges with the companies as well, so that your wins have to get really big. And you don't really make money as a venture person unless the magnitude of your wins. And they, they look at the data, the, the, the really, the top 1% you know, firms that are different than the top 5%, which are different than the top 25%. And it's largely the top 25% outside of maybe extraordinary bull markets that make all the money in our industry. You can pretty much ignore three quarters of the of the venture market because they, they, they don't really make any money and they certainly don't beat the benchmark. Top 25% does. But the difference between the top one and the top 25% is they have the same win ratio as in they, they win the same percentage of time. In fact, they actually slight, they win slightly less. That's what the data suggests. They fail more than, than, than the other firms, but the magnitude of their wins is so much greater that it makes up for all the losses. They're the ones who find the WhatsApps and the mm-hmm. Facebooks and the Googles of the world. And so you have to train yourself to basically think almost like an options trader where you're trying to buy call options on businesses that are going to that are going to come very deeply in the money and if they expire the worst that happens is you just lose the, you know the call option value which is the cash that you've invested that's a hard thing for most people to pivot to so mm-hmm. even though there's change here I just don't think that's how the world here thinks about about investing. If you do that kind of investing in any other type of business where the magnitude of the returns aren't the same, you will lose a lot of money because you'll never get the magnitude. So you'll have this very high law. Like if you invest in restaurants or cafes that way and like kind of like a speculator as a call option trader, you wouldn't be able to do it. But in tech, you can do it because if all the pieces line up and you do end up becoming a shareholder early on in something like a Google or Facebook, it more than makes up for your mistakes. So, so the magnitude really, really, really matters. And that, that is something that I still don't, that I don't see here. And then I don't see a lot of a- asset allocation strategies that make sense either mm-hmm. to the venture community. So every single endowment in the U.S. nowadays has transitioned over to basically thinking of venture as their call option inside of their portfolio. And a very good example of this is the University of Notre Dame was a $6 billion endowment back in the day, about 15, 20 years ago. Today is closer to like a $20 billion endowment. And I would say a very big chunk, I don't know what the exact number is, it's like a third or half of their returns come from their venture portfolio. So they've only allocated a small percentage of the capital to venture firms. But those venture firms have invested in some really interesting companies. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Notre Dame got something like a billion of distributions from Twitter stock alone, as in they were in the venture venture funds that invested in Twitter that then when Twitter went public, you know, distributed returns back to them. You don't see a lot of that here. We're, I think at this point, one of the top five, like absolute performing venture funds in Europe. We're like a 45, 48% IRR. I mean, our, our numbers are really good. We have been universally turned down by every single GCC investor. Mm. And, and those guys want to invest in the Sequoias of the world. The challenges of the Sequoias and the benchmarks, the guys who are astronomically good at this industry, they're all oversubscribed. So you're not going to get into their funds. Yep. So you have to find the young Turks who've kind of peeled off the Sequoia <laughs> or the benchmark. I peeled off of another fund, Axel. But you know, this this side of the world 
weirdly enough doesn't get it and then the knowledge transfer doesn't come either so it's it's a very it's a very odd place to me because it's a it's a market that i think is still learning but there's a ton of opportunities so if the right kinds of people got trained who had this kind of skill set i think you could see a lot more change get catalyzed a lot faster here because you'd actually have really interesting capital that would be underwriting some of these companies that could actually like make you know drive significant returns here who makes up your lp LPs. We joke. Our, our first fund was a lot of people who took pity on us. There were people <laughs> that we worked with in a past life who, after lots of persistent begging on our side, eventually caved in and wrote us enough of a check to make us go away. The check wasn't so big that if it really went to zero, which is what they were fully expecting it would happen, because they didn't believe that Europe was anything and this strategy made any sense in Europe. They, they all, a lot of them told us, come back to the Bay Area, mm. like go be proper venture people in the place in the world where you can actually be a venture person. We're like, no, Europe is going to produce this and watch, we're going to do really well. So they wrote us a check and, you know, kind of expected to go away and assuming that we lost it all, you know, we'd still begrudgingly get invited to dinner parties at their house if they, if they threw those. But that was our first fund. Our second fund went predominantly institutional. It's mostly large European, some American endowment type institutions. You know, our first fund, we did 17 investments. We have three unicorns out of that. I think we'll have somewhere between three and five unicorns. Our, our numbers are good. They're not quite Sequoia and benchmark numbers, but our biggest constraint in our first fund was we were so small that every dollar was so precious that we couldn't we couldn't actually extend ourselves. So like we walked away from Monzo, which is a big challenger bank in the UK. We were probably their first choice in terms of if we'd written them a term sheet, they, I think they would have taken our money. But it was late in the fund cycle for us and they needed a million pounds and a million pounds sounds like a small number. But for us as a small fund, that was a big number. We talked ourselves out it. It was very late in the fund. We wanted to use the dollars to follow on our existing investments. We turned down UiPath, which is now a seven, eight, maybe potentially $10 billion company. They wanted three to $5 million as an investment. We didn't have three to five. And the, the bitterness here is my old firm did it. And I think it's, it's, it's probably their best investment in that fund. So, you know, the old shop gets credit for it <laughs> versus us. It's nice to, as a young Turk, to be able to do it yourself and then, you know, kind of, you know, stick, you know, stick your finger up and say, I got that one. Do some name dropping. Name um, drop some ones you have invested in. You said three unicorns. Yeah, and so we did, we did three. Deliveroo is our, is one of our biggest. Our biggest actually delivers our second biggest is a cybersecurity company called Darktrace. Uh, Dark that's Trace a big company team, now. Yeah. Uh, so we were early investors in the those guys Great. as well. And then we were the seed investors in a company called Babylon Health, mm. which is launching here in the kingdom next year. So that that's exciting and, and actually took a really large check from PIF, the public investment fund, as part of their Series D or Series E financing. Excellent. And then what about the one you've invested in now? So let's do some, it's not favoriting some of your investments, but what which ones do you think are going to become unicorns? Yes. So it's the, the truth is in our second fund, we don't really know. They're all pretty young investments. There are a couple that we like that are starting to show signs of pretty good growth, but it's it's just way too early. And then we we have a pretty good idea of out of our first fund, there are those three that have just kind of been runaway successes, delivered Dark Trace Babylon. But I think there are another two that are scaling really fast and they're under the radar. People don't know them. One's a travel company called Tor Radar. We wrote a we wrote a check to them when they were doing about a quarter million a month in revenue. Today they're doing closer to fifteen million a month in revenue. So it's scaled up massively. Wow. It's still held for us at roughly around the cost basis that we invested in because they just haven't raised all that much money. It's based in Vienna of all places. You know, it's like two hundred something people now. So I suspect in the next like two years, 
you know, they'll, they'll be more on the map. They're very similar to a company called Get Your Guide or Kluke, which are both unicorn companies that are in adjacent markets. They don't really compete with those guys, but they're kind of the multi-day version of the same thing. So you use Tour Radar when you want to go on something like a safari and you'll use Get Your Guide when you're in some you know, place like Rome and you want to guide for Rome. So it's still a guided thing, but one is a full-on experience where you're going for five to seven days. The other one is something where you're in a city and you need an activity. So they're kind of adjacent markets. I think Tour Radar can become really big. And then we have a company, which I think has a very quirky name called Super super awesome. And when they started, nobody really believed in what they were doing, which is sometimes how these things start, where they said the kids' internet, is the children's internet is very different than the adult internet and needs an extra layer of protection, security, etc. And so they acted as an intermediary between advertisers and publishers where they would make sure that the advertising that was going to children was compliant with all the regulation and all the rules. So in certain markets, you can't advertise sugary drinks to kids. In other markets, parents have to be informed at a certain age that a kid's going to be shown a certain ad. So they took away all that friction. You know, they're doing like 50 million plus now in, in, in revenue. That business model is now much more on the mainstream because a whole bunch of people, including YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, have been fined in the U.S. for showing inappropriate advertising to children. And these guys are building not just the advertising layer, but the entire platform because they're convinced that the way you do authentication, like we have Facebook accounts and Google accounts as grownups, but kids under the age of 13 are not not supposed to. So when you want to log into a service, you know, sometimes we just click connect with Facebook. So they're building the infrastructure for kids to be able to do that. They're building a platform that's going to be very similar to YouTube. The challenge with YouTube is if you're if you're a child watching it, the YouTube recommendation engine will then show you other mm-hmm. information or other kinds of videos that may or may not be kid appropriate. And they don't really make a distinction between kids and non-kids. So we're building kind of the Hulu for 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 kids. And we have a lot of support from the industry to do that. You know, I think that's a company that's that's one to watch and that could turn out to be a really big valuable company as well we've been really lucky you know turning up and being in the right place at the right time in europe as a market kind of took off in europe is it really luck well is it attitude and culture of the organization and and the people you surround yourself with so i'd say we we upset about half the people that we that that we encounter because we're very focused at helping our companies become large big global businesses and there is a there is a strain of thought even in europe to this day that kind of is parallels with like trump's make america great which is make europe great and the other day the european union i think announced that they're going to have a 10 billion dollar pot to create like science r&d unicorns i was in a French event two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, where the French Minister of Economic Affairs said, we want to create 25 unicorns in two years. If only it was that easy. And there is a very easy way to do that, which is you write a really large check. Billion dollar check. And then it's good. I don't even have to write a billion. You can write a hundred million and the company's (laughs) worth a billion, right? You own 10% and voila, you spend the billion dollars of capital. Sorry, 2.5 billion if you write a hundred each and you've got your 25 unicorns. I mean, that's, you know, inflation (laughs) is, is pretty prominent in our industry right now. And that's why things get overvalued. So you can create unicorns, but actually really building unicorns. I think most of these things turn out to be global businesses, there are a whole bunch of people who are very nationalist, who want to build local champions. And in fact, there are a whole bunch of German venture funds that get money from Germany and there are a bunch of French venture funds that get money from France, largely to go make France like the US because they're very, you know, there's there's a little bit of an insecurity that the US has the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and, and Europe really kind of doesn't. So let's go create one. I don't think it really works, but, you know, good, good, good goodness to those who want to try. And I think the entrepreneurs who want to go then build very French 
centric, very Spanish centric, very German centric business, which usually turn out to be copycats. We're alienated from them. They're alienated from us. But for the other companies, I think there are not that many people like us sitting you know, in Europe. We, we happen to sit in London. We've invested in Ukraine. We've invested in Belarus. We've invested. We just did a deal in Poland. And we're, we're pretty agnostic. We, mm. we kind of believe in greater Europe. The question to us is, is it a great idea? Is it a new market? Does the team really want to be ambitious? Do they want to tackle the U.S. market first? I'm convinced that if you're in Europe, you know, if you're starting from Sweden, there is no reason to come to the U.K. first. You should pack your bags and go win the U.S. market and then come back and tackle the U.K. And I live in the U.K. I love the U.K., but the U.K. is a much smaller country. It's a, effectively a small island nation, especially as it kind of separates from the rest of Europe. There's no reason why you should make it market number one, market number two. You should make it market number three, number four, number five and go crack correct the US. I, I don't think everyone thinks that way. We're one of the few folks who does think that way. And then we're very happy to write the check. There have been a bunch of people who've come in. We our first or second investment, I think the founder wanted 300k. And I think we wrote a $1.3 million check because we said there's no way you can do this with 300K. Well, all you'll get is like a little bit of a prototype. A prototype doesn't get you anywhere. Let's go figure out how to build the first you know, real product release and let's go underwrite that risk, right? Because if we believe in the idea, we believe in you. We should not underfund you. We should get you get you there. I Again, I don't think there are that many people who do that kind of investing in Europe. It's very ethical for a VC. Well, I mean, it's, I think venture, venture when done right is a partnership oriented culture. So it's a partnership as a venture fund. It's a partnership with the entrepreneur. If you're not a partner of the entrepreneur, you don't have that much of a business long term because people don't want to work with you on a repeat basis. And we make a lot of our money, not over one transaction. So again, a game theory thing, which is a, when, when you don't tend to make a lot of wealth in an economy in this way, you focus on the transaction. And by focusing on the transaction, you optimize that transaction for yourself because it's kind of zero sum. Whatever you leave on the table doesn't come to you. If you're a venture person and if you've been trained in the value, what you realize is this is a multi-round game where you're going to be making money with the same kinds of people that you're working with for 20, 30 years and you leave stuff on the table, you do things that are right. And, and on top of that, there's a kind of a positive karma in the business where you just don't know that that person that you're talking to is in their mid 20s. One of my good friends from business school referred his analyst to me. He was at a hedge fund. He's a portfolio manager at Citadel now. At the time, he was at a, a spin out hedge fund from Goldman. He's like, meet my analyst. Analyst is like 24, 25 years old. I sat down with him for coffee. Today, that analyst runs international for Uber. It's like 28, 29 years old. I mean, he's probably the one of like the core execs at Uber. And he did this like from his early, you just don't know who you're talking to and who the people you're talking to are going to become. And you want to be involved with those people all throughout their career. So you, you play this very, very, very long game. And so you're not optimizing for, for a zero sum type of transaction. So on that basis, it's, I think it's a much more ethical, it's, it's, weird to a lot of other people who are not used to this who are so aggressive sometimes on the deal you got to think about look you're not you're not playing this and just the one time right you want to you want to continually do business with people over the life of their careers for everybody who is listening to the podcast how do they get some of that that love from you get some of that money and, and access to your your network what is it you want them to present to you and how well, so so we you know we think there are very there are very few markets that change every year, you know when those markets get opened up, something changes that allows that company to get built. There's something like two to a hundred companies that kind of spot the market. 
it's kind of like the blind man with the elephant. Nobody really knows the shape of the elephant because they don't really see the market and the market's kind of fuzzy. So everyone's kind of poking at it in a different way. You know, those kinds of companies, we love meeting. The more of them we meet, the more, the better informed we get. We're not smart enough to figure out those markets. We, we would raise our hands and say that up front. If we knew what those markets were going to be and how to take advantage of them, we'd go off and build companies. Part of the reason why we become investors is we like supporting people who are a lot smarter than us, who see more of that opportunity. And then we kind of we follow their lead and we write them the check. What we're really good about is then helping them kind of avoid the mistakes that other people have made and kind of build some kind of pattern recognition. And our, and our door is always open. We're very focused today on Europe because that's where our base has been. We would love to do more and grow the firm out over time. We're, by the way, a, I keep saying two, but we, as of last week, we're now three. We're a three-person firm. So we're tiny. People ask us all these questions. How do you diligence this stuff? And mm. you know, this is a partner-centric firm. We just make our own decisions. It's, it's actually not that hard. We'd love to spill out to like five to seven people and cover more of the world. We've talked to people in this part of the world about raising money to do some of that. We've failed miserably every single time. So I think it's harder for us to expand just the way any company is, because if you don't have a supportive kind of investor base on your side, it's hard to grow out your business to be something really interesting. And so we're we're curtailed by our ability to grow. And then we have a core business that also has to get run really well, which is doing what we do in, in Europe. But our door is always open. My email is really easy. It's uh, Hussein, H-U-S-S-E-I-N at hoxton.vc, H-O-X-T-O-N.vc. And I'd welcome anyone to, to shoot me an email. Great. Well, thank you very much for spending this time with us. Everybody, please reach out it would be great for you to get in contact and hopefully you'll, uh, you'll get an opportunity to become the next unicorn. Thank and you. And we'll learn something along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thanks.